How I Got Here, the inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Welcome to How I Got Here, Mojo and Focus Warriors weekly podcast about innovation in travel and transportation. I'm David Litwack, and I'm joined by Kevin May, and today we're honored to welcome Jillian Morris. Jillian Morris is the co-founder and CEO of Hitlist, a mobile app which alerts you when flight prices drop for trips that you want to take. Uh, welcome, Jillian. Thank you, David. Great to be here. So we like to start all these interviews off the same way, uh, which is to ask you how you got here. So... I started Hitlist in 2012. At the time, I was living in Turkey, and I was working as a journalist and a consultant, and I was also learning how to code on the side. I used codeacademy.com, and I was always trying to see when flight prices were dropping, both for my own travels and also to try and get people to come and visit me. Um, And I had all these friends who said they were going to come to Istanbul, and then they weren't showing up. And I started alerting them when I saw flight prices drop. And I actually rode a scraper that went on kayak and was just doing hundreds of searches a day. Um, maybe I shouldn't name kayak. I don't know. Um, at this point, maybe statute <laughs> of limitations has passed, uh, if anyone cares. Um, and so I was uh, keeping the spreadsheet of good flight prices. And whenever I saw a really good price from New York to Istanbul or London to Istanbul, I'd email my friends there. And all of a sudden, people started coming in droves. And I had all these house guests. It was great. We had many adventures. And I had people start to say, you know, can you let me know when there are cheap flights to London? Can you let me know when there are cheap flights to San Francisco? And so I started expanding this. And I had this giant spreadsheet. And um, I was just being the personal travel agent for a lot of my friends and trying to do it in a systematic way. And building this ever more complex and incredibly ugly and incredibly error prone algorithm that was tracking all of these flight prices. And eventually, um, after about a year of doing other things than just the thing that was already working, um, I ended up banding together with some great friends and we started to build Hitlist. I can go into more detail, but that's the sort of beginning of the origin story. Okay, so uh, hi, Gillian, it's Kev here, welcome. Um, now, I, I, I came across Hitlist in its, I guess, its, uh, its former name, which was Trip Common. And uh, maybe you'll remember the, uh, uh, the year, I think it was around 2012. 2012. 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my previous guys at Teenies, we used to run hackathons. And we ran a hackathon in London, and you, won a, you and your uh, colleagues i think it was elliot and timo were one of the contestants one of the participants in the hackathon and you came along and you won the hackathon with a uh, uh, a, a brand of i guess a, a, probably wasn't even a brand at that point it was a, a product that you called trip common so talk to us how you got to trip common and you know, the experience of the hackathon and then how it morphed into uh, the early kind of versions of hit list yeah, so that was a, a very formative hackathon. That was my my first ever. And it was yeah. also, that was one of the things I alluded to when I said we spent a year building other things than the thing that was already working. 
um, yeah. in the sense that people were already enjoying the flight price alerts that I could give them. But uh, Trip Common was a different idea. It was uh, the idea of, oh, I live in Istanbul and my friend lives in London. We want to meet up. What's the cheapest place that we both can get to? And so it was cross-referencing good flight deals from multiple different locations. And it's a funny, it's an idea that I've seen people build over and over and over again as I've continued to look at the travel startup space. And at the time, I hadn't done as much research and I didn't realize quite how many times it had been tried and, and failed. <laughs> but I, um, I really enjoyed the experience of doing that hackathon, prototyping, building something in the course of, I believe it was two weeks. So it wasn't your traditional weekend long zero sleep yeah on a yeah. lot of adrenaline and pizza yeah. um, type of experience. But we got to the hackathon and it was incredibly empowering to get up there and, and present something and, and win. I think I also, Kevin, I think you remember with some amusement, <laughs> I inadvertently <laughs> mortally offended one of the sponsors. Uh, don't, did they sponsor a hackathon after that? They, 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 they weren't a sponsor of the hackathon. They provided, this is a, a company called Viant, which is now part of uh, Pros. They provided their flight API for all the yeah, participants I, to use. And um, uh, I, I, I'm going to paraphrase you here, Gillian, but when you did your presentation, I think you said, well, we tried to use the Viant one, but we couldn't quite get it to work. It was great, but the documentation or whatever. So we used another one that we found, which was, which was called Everbread. Now, those with uh, slightly longer memories than, uh, than many of us will recall that Viant and Everbread were arch rivals at the time. Uh, to the extent that they were in the courts uh, uh, fighting over the ownership of the code. And uh, I was sitting next to the two, <laughs> the two, uh, the two execs from Vines in the audience when you were making this uh, presentation and you made, you very nonchalantly said that, oh, you decided to use this other one, which many of us thought was really amusing. Uh, luckily <laughs> they did eventually. But it was just one of those, I suppose, in a way, you know, you, as, you, as, you, as you said, Julian, you're kind of new into the industry. This is your first hackathon, your first exposure to the uh, uh, often uh, bitter and complicated world of the travel industry, especially on airline distribution. And there you were. So it, it, was, it, was, a, it was a fine moment. I hope it wasn't uh, too tortuous for you. But you did win the hackathon, so I guess it wasn't so bad. It wasn't so bad at all. I, I like how you described that, the... the torturous world of airline travel um, <laughs> yeah it is so Sorry, if i can uh no yeah i can interject uh <laughs> i i remember you know jillian and i actually met um near the beginning of both of our startup journeys because we had the same lawyers and were mooching off of their office space together um i was so, trying to remember how we met each other yeah yeah it was wilson's yep, secret on townsend uh they uh, told us when they recruited us uh at least I don't know what they told you that uh, occasionally we could use their office space. And we completely took that to the logical extreme of coming in every single day. And so I, that's how for like uh, two years. Yeah, exactly. For two years. <laughs> they, they had great they, snacks. Yeah, they did. Uh, and uh, uh, that's how we uh, rationalized the ridiculously high fees. But um, I, uh, I remember, you know, at various points, you, at one point you pitched it to me as like Tinder for travel uh, because you were going to swipe on which destinations you were, uh, then going to get flight updates on. Uh, and I, I would love to hear kind of a little bit of history of, um, of your narrative, actually, kind of like start, you know, I'm not sure if that was the first one, but I feel like, you know, how you've messaged what you're doing and how it's, how, how has it changed over time after it became Hitless and not Trip Common? Yeah, so 
It's interesting. I think Tinder for travel is very easy to misinterpret. And to be clear, it was only meant <laughs> in the sense that we were emulating their UI, not the uh, in any way a dating <laughs> thing. Although I did not have a really creepy thing. VC suggest that to me once that I should be using this as a way to show single friends of friends in other cities. And anyway, um, that was... We, uh, we've, al- we've, yeah, we've already interviewed uh, Where Are You Now's <laughs> Jerome Twos, and that kind of thing was leveled at them as well anyway, but please carry on. Oh, Sorry. yeah, they have a fascinating story. Yeah. Um, that'll be a good episode to listen to. Uh, sorry, but to address David's question, uh, so Trip Common, as I mentioned, was the separate idea about meeting up with friends who lived in different places. And uh, when we sort of realized that that wasn't working, we spent about nine months working on that full time. And I had, in my head, I had allocated, to me, this was going to be like my business school. I mean, it was it was a passion and I was hoping that it would turn into a a giant successful company, but I was saying I am willing to dedicate two years of my life and up to a hundred grand of my own money to the process of trying to get this off the ground, to get to the point where a credible outside stranger wants to invest in this and or it's profitable. So nine months in, I was starting to feel that urgency of, okay, this, this doesn't seem to be working out the original idea. And so we started to enter in, I mean, we had learned a lot through the experience and I met a lot of great people in the industry and had started to see gaps in, in other things that we could build. So we started to do these sprints, these little internal hackathons for a month. And then we went down to a week at a time, just building different ideas. And I think we did enter one or two of them in pitch competitions and, or in, in hackathons, maybe another T-News one. I think over the course of Hitless Life, I'm very proud to say I've won uh, eight hackathons, I believe. And uh, so in the course of that, I just, you know, rapidly iterating ideas. And when we started to build what became Hitlist, it was the idea, just Tinder was so popular. How about if you could swipe on cities and use that to build up your list, your hit list of places that you might like to go? and then get targeted alerts because there were at the time and there still are a lot of players in the industry that will give you fair alerts. There's Holiday Pirates in Europe, there's Travel Zoo in the US, just to name two of the really big companies. Um, But I always found those incredibly frustrating because I was just getting a completely random list of deals and it would say, oh, you know, $79 jet jet blue fair sale to Buffalo, New York. And and I don't really want to go to Buffalo. Or um, it would say that these deals were available that were just irrelevant to me. So instead, if you could swipe through cities and sort of match uh, when you got a fair alert, that was the original idea. And I, I still have the original prototype that we put together looked exactly like Tinder. And uh, that was something that we built. We prototyped, we put it out there. And the reaction when we released it was just totally shocking. People found it really fun to swipe through. And so we went through the first, you know, nine months of our existence with Trip Common. I think in grand total, we ended up having a couple thousand people visit the website. Pretty much none of them ever came back. And when we released Hitlist, the first version of it, we ended up having you know, a couple hundred people in the first week, and then all of a sudden about 5,000. And then we had, within the first month, we had 25,000 people who had downloaded it, and they would tell their friends. And it was just really fun to swipe through the cities. 
the trouble was, of course, we hadn't really built out the back end very well. And so we weren't doing a very good job of then matching them with the deals. And um, and we also had built something that we didn't really and had not built to scale. And so that was our first little road bump. But even having the transition from Trip Common, which no one really wanted to use, to all of a sudden something that clearly was working in a way that the market was just validating so quickly was a really heady moment. I want wanted to quickly just ask a follow-up there. You, you said uh, previously that uh, you know, had you done more research, you would realize everyone had tried to do the friends meeting up thing. As someone who did try one of the, these ideas that a lot of people have uh, gone through, what do you think makes some of these ideas really, really alluring, but just un, unsolvable? Like uh, trip inspiration is another one. You know, massive travel planning is another, right? Like, I'm curious if it's given you any perspective for anyone looking to get into our industry. Like, what about these problems is uh, not solvable? Well, I I dispute that. I don't think any of them are unsolvable. And I I think people will eventually build the right product for these. I think we, we see that every day. We see new products evolve that actually fit a need we didn't even know we had um, or actually meet a need that people have been trying for a long time, whether it's Slack or, um, I don't know, Gmail back in the day, which everyone said, oh, you know, people keep on trying to build a better workplace communication tool and, you know, Skype is the be all end all. That's all we're ever going to get. (laughs) So I do have a lot of faith that someone will crack these. The thing that I see most often, which is most frustrating, is the people who come into the industry with zero knowledge of the travel industry and try and take on these ambitious projects and generally don't get very far. And I think that's damaging because, um, uh, sorry, to be clear, I am a huge encourager of people to try, but I also think you do need to do your research and understand. And that's something that I have made a lot of effort to do, to talk to other founders in the space and to get a better handle on why certain things work and why certain things don't. Um, so what you have very often is someone who comes into the travel space with, again, zero context, zero knowledge of the world of travel, which is very complicated, and instantly thinks that they're going to be able to solve one of these longer term problems. And I think, uh, it just takes a lot more research and most of the problems that they try to solve are not the most pressing ones. Um, or the ones that would most benefit from having a deep well of industry knowledge. So I feel like that's a rather roundabout answer to your question, but um, yeah, maybe, just to, just to, yeah, absolutely. Just to layer on top of that, actually, I, <clears throat> I was thinking like Mozio's first iteration of stuff we won't go into, but <clears throat> I felt like we wasted a year and a half um, because we didn't speak to enough people in the industry to realize that certain things we were doing were kind of untenable. And well, you, I think you were, you were doing multimodal, right? Yeah, but uh, we were we were kind of doing what Rome to Rio and Go Euro eventually did, but we were too early and our angle wasn't correct, you know. And and I think uh, Go Euro came around a couple of years later, and I think had better timing. And um, so you know, there's a balance between being told mm, something's not possible, a yeah, ridiculous <laughs> amount of money, exactly. And uh, we had Naren on the podcast earlier, but um, I, I I think one thing, one reason why we started this, Kevin and I were talking about how it's actually incredibly tough to get meetings with a lot of industry people to learn the ins and outs of the industry and inevitably you're definitely not learning about all of the the intricacies so 
I think uh, that's, you know, part of the origin of this. So anyways, but I don't want to monopolize the conversation, Kevin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting, Gillian. Uh, uh, do you sense or would you agree that over the last, probably in that period since Trip Common and Hitlist have been around, that those that, you know, the gatekeepers, for want of a better phrase, have been more helpful or not to startups coming in, in terms of explaining how it works, opening up APIs and things like that? Would you, would you sense it's easier or not coming in now? I think that's hard to say. I think that there are a lot of things that are better documented. There are a lot more tools out there like open APIs and standards that would make some of the things that we were doing early on much easier. But I also think the travel industry has expanded a lot. And while it was incredibly difficult to get in the door and to talk to the initial gatekeepers when we were started, once you kind of got inside, you felt like you were inside. And I, I'm certainly not in the you know inner sanctum of you know uh, billionaire travel founders, but <laughs> at least I think most of them at this point I could get a meeting with if I wanted. And in fact, I considered some of them friends and mentors. And I think the industry at this point, they're just, there's such a greater, um, there's probably, you know, a thousand times as many people starting companies today as there were even seven years ago. And that means that it's going to inevitably get harder to filter down to meet the people that are most important. Right. And if we can go back then, so, you talked us through that, I guess, if we can call it phase one of, 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 of the business, what it was all about. What were you having to do in terms of, I know you had the, almost like a viral effect, you know, you suddenly had 10x the amount of users each time and this is all great. Did you, did you have to devise some other kind of more um, traditional marketing strategy with trying to find some money to do, to do various things or how did you approach it? You know, it's funny. I feel like people sometimes ask me for marketing advice or think that I've been good at marketing hit list because we've gotten to 1.7 million downloads yeah. with, uh, but the, the truth of the matter is we've had zero marketing spend. We've not as much as I'm, I'm proud of what we've managed to do marketing wise in terms of uh, we've gotten some great PR and most importantly, we've been featured repeatedly by the app store. And that's definitely the number one driver of downloads um, of a marketing sense, but that's not something you can't pay the app store for that. I mean, we're not buying the ads. We are being editorially featured. Yeah. Um, so I don't actually have sort of silver, silver bullets on the marketing side other than, you know, get 16,000 five-star reviews in the app store and they, they will feature you and, um, and build, do that by building a, a good product. And, I, I wish I were a more savvy marketer. In fact, I see, I really admire the marketing moxie of, of a number of other companies out there from Hotel Tonight to Airbnb and, and even Wanderoo, I would say. I see, I get their ads targeted all the time in Instagram and I, I feel like they're doing a great job. Um, that's not something that we've focused on or, or really excelled in, I think. 
But you, just a quick follow-up on that before David comes in. I mean, uh, I'm looking at a list here. You've been featured in Inc. and Business Insider and TechCrunch and HuffPost and Bazaar and US News and BuzzFeed and CNBC and countless others, plus the App Store. Was that just by employing some savvy PRs to help you out, or was that good fortune because your users were voting you in well in the App Store, so they take notice of what's going on in the App Store, or is it kind of a, a combination of all of those? I mean, I I come from a background in journalism. I was briefly at CNN and I have a lot of friends who are journalists. And that is something that, I mean, I wouldn't say I actively cultivated in the sense that I was, you know, seeking to be friends with journalists specifically, but that's something that has organically happened. And I've definitely also made an effort to connect the travel innovation community at times I've done dinners or I've done breakfasts and that's something that I think has led to connections with a number of other journalists um, and that's actually probably one of the unexpected side effects of I, I would do these breakfasts with other travel founders as a way to just share knowledge and make sure we weren't repeating each other's mistakes um, and David I know you you and I co-hosted some of these and I think journalists started to hear about that and think that I was some sort of, I don't know, soothsayer about the travel industry. Um, And that helped us get more coverage. Very cool. So you mentioned you had these, was it 1.7 million downloads? Was that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it brings me to the question of how did you start making money? And and if you could walk us through kind of like the various uh, stages and, and, and methods that you tried out. Sure. So uh, we make money three ways. So the first is the most obvious, which is simply we are given an affiliate commission when people book flights. As anyone who works in the space knows, those commissions are very, very small. But at the same time, I don't, there are a lot of people who say you can't make money in flights because the commission is so small. I think that is based on two other assumptions, which is that you're paying a lot to acquire your customer and that you're paying a lot for data. And uh, for various reasons that we've figured out, we do neither of those. We don't pay for our data. We don't pay to acquire customers. And therefore, you know, it's just margin that we're making there. And um, once you get up to a good volume, that, that is a real business, as obviously Kayak and Skyscanner and many others have demonstrated. And that is, so that's the, the first pillar. The second is advertising. We do some native advertising. We've experimented with a ton of different uh, types of advertising, and I definitely have opinions about why some work and why don't, why some don't. I can get into um, in a moment if you like. And then the third is in uh, last year, we introduced a premium subscription offering, which allows our users to uh, pay to get a few extra features. So the ability to specify nonstop flights only or a specific airline or alliance or to exclude a specific airline if they don't want Ryanair flights or something like this and the time of day of departure and access to some extra deals. So that direct subscription is $8.99 per month in the app store right now. And and we have a couple thousand people that are on that or on our monthly and annual plans. Very cool. So I know at one point you tried to 
explore working with these tourist bureaus. And for anyone who's been to uh, a major travel convention, uh, not focus right because they don't really uh, have have these there, but you always see the you know the visit Mexico booth that is massive and uh, elaborately decorated. <laughs> and I always wondered for the longest time oh, what the hell they did, <laughs> like, and who are they paying to go visit Mexico? And you know, I, the, the anecdote for me is I always saw visit California ads in California where I'm from, and I'm like, okay, these, these people seem to have an incredibly bad use of their <laughs> funds. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and I remember we had a conversation a couple of years ago about how you were trying to engage with them. And, and could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I, like you, I've, I've been to all these conventions and seen the massive displays from the, the DMOs. So DMOs and tourism boards, destination marketing organizations, uh, are uh, a really bizarre industry that I started to get to know. It seemed like a match made in heaven from an advertising perspective because Hitlist is relatively unique, excuse me, um, in the sense that we are uh, at the junction of people who are might be flexible on destination, they're at the inspiration stage, but we also have a transaction platform. So um, you can come to Hitlist and say, I want to travel somewhere the last week of January, maybe to a ski destination, maybe to South America. And that would be a perfect place for a destination to maybe advertise themselves. So we wanted to work with that industry and we started to attend some of the conferences because there's not just the ITB, there's also the uh, DMAI, um, Destination Marketing Association International, I think is the, the central one there. And I found a lot of people who loved Hitlist, who loved to talk about the deals that we could do together and a lot of them are on, you know, media buying cycles. And that was something that I knew nothing about the sort of ad buying world in general. And so it took some uh, time to understand, well, if someone's, you know, spent all their budget by May and they won't get money again to spend until August. Um, but I, I really tried for a long time to talk to a lot of destinations. And I found some of the things that they spent money on completely ridiculous. So I was talking to one DMO. They said they had spent, you know, $8,000 per tweet that TripAdvisor, or sorry, that Travel and Leisure did about their uh, destination. And I just thought that's like, it's so much money. Um, and what is the ROI? How do you know that someone who saw that Travel and Leisure tweet ended up coming to your destination? And I realized it's, it's a very unscientific process. A lot of these DMOs are, um, or tourism boards, a lot of them are government organizations of people that are either appointed for a relatively short amount of time uh, and or they're just given these budgets and very little accountability for how they're spent. It's not really a, a very professionalized space. Uh, that being said, there are some that really just totally kill it and are um, winning at the game, the Las Vegas, uh, Florida, New York, um, uh, I think are some of the most competitive in the world. But then you talk to, I, I, you know, I don't really want to name names, but just some of the absurdity of some of the contracts that we were discussing with people and what they thought they were looking for. And uh, it was a level of um, unscientific, you could call it incompetence that um, <laughs> was, was staggering. And, and finally, I remember having a conversation with someone and I said, I just, I can't get it. 
how do you decide where do you spend where you spend your money? And he said, Jillian, we spend our money with the people that we've been drinking with at conferences for 17 years. And that's who I give my big contracts to. Uh, And so it it really is this relationships driven industry. You go to DMAI and it's like a high school reunion. It's seriously, it's everyone does. They've known each other for 10 years and this is, is clearly a big event for them. And I do think there's, you know, a lot that could be done to um, win in that space. And there are certain companies that have done an amazing job networking and winning the trust and the business of a lot of these big destinations. But in the grand scheme of things, it was something that I realized was going to take a lot of time and dedication. And the funny thing is, since we stopped focusing on that, we've had more destinations approach us. And it's just a matter of time and and knowing that we're there and that we've been around the block that gives them the the trust and want to actually spend money with us. But um, it was a space that I just didn't see being a clear ROI that would be trustable um, because, you know, you make a a $2 million contract with a destination one year and then the person that you had the relationship with leaves and you don't know if you're going to get it again. Mm. Um, And so we decided to just focus on, on other sides of business that we thought were more promising. I, we still are very happy to do business with destinations. It's just been, it's shifted from something that was taking up a lot of my time and, and people on our sales side time to something that is, uh, we deal with inbound only. So uh, talk to us, Gillian, a little bit about your um, hit list's approach to raising capital. You've raised very little, if any, um, from what we can, from what I can see here from, um, reputable sources like Crunchbase. I mean, talk to us a little bit about that strategy and how you've how you have approached it. You know, I, it's it's a tricky one to say because you can't a b test. You know, would it have been better if we raised more or less? You know, would the company be in a different place? It's true we've raised very little money in the grand scheme of things compared to most venture backed companies. Uh, However, if you also point out that, you know, we've raised more than a million dollars and that's something that someone could spend on, you know, five houses or something like this, you, it, it, it's all relative. I, uh, the reason that we've raised relatively little money at first was because I couldn't. Uh, I tried very hard and have spoken to more than 300 investors in the course of Hitlist's existence. And it was, I think, over 100 before I got my first, which I will give credit where it's due. It was actually thanks to you, David. Um, the first outside investor was um, Jeff Clark at Orbitz, who was the, at the time the chairman of Orbitz. David made the introduction uh, because he was an investor of yours. And it was the most surreal experience after more than a hundred investor meetings of just getting told no, maybe in the future, which really means no, um, to sit down over breakfast and about 15, 20 minutes in, Jeff just said, uh, yeah, I like it. I'm, I'm in for 25, maybe 50. And I, 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 was, I was like, do you need more due diligence? Do you need my docs? Do you need, he's like, well, I, obviously I'll review your docs to make sure that they're not crazy. But I assume that as long as it's fairly textbook, uh, I've done a little research on you. It seems uh, in, in line with some of the trends in the industry. Sure, let's do this. And um, you know, I'm not going to be super active, but use and abuse my name if it's useful to, to open other doors. And 
it was the most unbelievable change. Uh, and, and it really, um, I am incredibly grateful to him for taking that chance on me. You know, I do think there are these angel investors out there who have the capital to just spread it around so often. And it took me, you know, a year and a half to get to the point where I, I met the right person. But, uh, you know, you, you, it's possible, I guess. Yeah, just um, to, to comment on that, he was actually Mozio's first investor too and the same similar thing. I think we had 30 no's until he said yes. And I think the advice I give a lot of uh, <clears throat> entrepreneurs is to find that first champion who is the has the combination of like <laughs> fuck you money so, so they're not actually uh they're willing to k- take kind of like a, a risk on you but also the specific industry knowledge so that uh because i think there's a lot of people who don't have that overlapping venn diagram and, and jeff clark was it for both of us i guess Jillian, mm-hmm. uh, G- um, a colleague of mine jill mens uh, interviewed you last year for a uh, a story that she was writing and uh w- when you spoke to her you said uh, i'm just going to quote from the from the story here you said uh, uh women are more likely to raise on traction and experience whereas men try to raise on vision in other words a woman will pitch a business plan that is solidly rooted in her experience and that she can support with numbers that indicate the likelihood of success and a man will pitch a business idea that captures the imagination regardless of whether it is remotely realistic and you said, I've learned to sell my story, my vision in terms that at times make me feel uncomfortable. Um, can you kind of talk us through some of your experiences around that and what have led to you, you know, led you to have that kind of, I guess that's a very, that's a, it's a very a good opinion or one that we've heard before from others. I mean, talk to us about those experiences that have uh, formed that. I, I, I come back to this one time, um, that I was doing a, it was at a pitch event in New York City. It's called Entrepreneurs Roundtable, uh, where there are, uh, I believe, it was you know five entrepreneurs would get up and give their pitch, and in front of an investor, and he or she would give their give them feedback, and it was a really great learning experience for those of us who had no idea how to go about this, how to raise capital, and then uh, the fifth person, the fifth entrepreneur just didn't show up. So there was an extra slot. So at the end of the event, they said, okay, we'll let someone else pitch their business. And the investor who was, um, gosh, I want to say Dana Grayson. Um, she, she said, okay, I want to, if, if anyone in the audience here has uh, a business idea and, you know, 20 people raise their hand and how many of you have a product that you've actually built a prototype at least. And it, went down to, you know, six people. How many people have something that's in the market that has users? And it was down to myself and and this guy. And then, and how many people have, um, uh, are making more than $10,000 per month? And I put my hand down because we weren't at the time. We were very, very early. And so this guy gets on stage and he gets to give this pitch to the whole audience and to Dana and to get, you know, personalized feedback. And he spins this amazing story about what he's building. But then he, he also, in the midst of his pitch, makes clear that he actually hasn't built anything, not released anything, has no users, certainly is not making $10,000 a month. And no one said anything. And I just said, wait, I'm here and I'm playing by the rules. And I, I should be the one that has that pitch, that has this opportunity to be up there speaking. And... I still, I, I just, 
I've seen that type of thing happen over and over again. Um, there's, there's a lot of evidence as well, uh, studies where, you know, women will only apply for jobs that they meet all of the listed criteria for, whereas men will, um, you know, apply for jobs where they don't meet any of the criteria and still, you know, get a, a chance to throw their hat in the ring. So I'm not, you know, I would like to think that we could live in a world where people would actually, you know, play by the rules rather than uh, adapt to the world as it is. But at the same time, you know, I've learned that sometimes you do, yeah, you, you learn to tell the story. I think there is a very important line to be drawn between spinning a, an outright falsehood, like I think this guy at the pitch competition in New York City did, um, versus learning how to simply put a, an inspirational spin on your story. And that's something that I've, I've learned to get better at and, and sell the vision of what we're building a little bit more. But it's been something that is uh, something I continually need to work on. It, have, you, have you got into a, a situation where you've, you've felt that there has been some, uh, you know, we'll call it what it is, discrimination, and you've called somebody out like an investor because you've sensed that they are looking at your business in a different through a different lens because of who you are? Well, unfortunately, I don't think it really tends to work that way because there are a million reasons an investor can say no to anything. Yeah. You know, they can say, well, I'm, not, I'm certainly not saying no because you're a woman. I'm saying no because you don't have this type of metric that I'm looking for. Yeah. So there aren't really opportunities to kind of call that out that often. It's something that you just kind of, um, can look at overall trends and speak to rather than, um, you know, I, I also am not presumptuous. I don't believe that I deserve anyone's money or anyone's investment. I believe that I, I do have to work for it. Um, it's just, there's this great uh, moment after one of the recent democratic debates where Amy Klobuchar, who's a Senator from Minnesota with an incredible track record in the legislature here in the U S and, um, she was talking about Pete Buttigieg, who is this upstart uh, mayor of a small yeah. town in Indiana who's captured the imagination, is, I believe, the number one fundraiser in the Democratic primary as of now. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, someone did ask her about this, and she said, well, you know, do I think that a woman who had, you know, not won an office with more than 11,000 votes, who had run for chairman of the DNC and lost, um, would be the front running fundraiser in, I, I think, I don't think that would happen. Um, and so there've been a number of times where I've said, well, it's interesting that this person who has not won hackathons, who has not built something, who has not built something that has these metrics seems to be able to raise so much more money than me so easily. But I mean, at the end of the day, the best way to prove them wrong is to build a successful business. And, and that's something that to come back to your original question about our fundraising strategy, we haven't raised since 2016 yep. and don't have plans to anytime soon. We're profitable. And that's been something that's uh, just learning to adjust to a, a different game rather than play the one that tends to be in the media circus is something that has become our focus. 
That's uh, some amazing stories there. I I say this as a compliment. I feel like you're uh, very resilient and do not die. And I think I count myself and Mozio to be in similar situations that Mozio also hasn't raised actually for about four years and has stayed relatively lean. And at some stages is because we couldn't, some stages we could, but uh, you know, things didn't work out. Um, and I, I, I know because we've known each other for such a long time, you've got a lot of interesting stories. So this is kind of an open-ended one to wrap things up here, but from uh, your many years in the travel industry, is there an experience or something that's happened to you that uh, you feel like it's worth sharing uh, that stood out? Um, I know you've, you've uh, had, uh, you experimented with uh, acquisitions and gone through that, uh, you know, uh, is is there anything that we haven't touched on that you think is just really relevant and an amazing story? Uh, that's uh, it is a very open ended question. So many juicy bits, but um, I do think the uh, something that I haven't talked about uh, is the acquisition process, and that's been a really fascinating thing. To um, you know, I don't think anyone builds a, builds a company. Uh, well, actually. I should qualify that. I was going to say, I don't think anyone builds a, a company expecting it to be acquired, but I realize there are actually plenty of savvy entrepreneurs who do that. But uh, for, for those of us who are you know, building our vision of our, our dream world, um, I think the acquisition isn't necessarily the, the outcome that we think we're going for. But there also comes a point when you've been doing something for a large stage of your life and you realize, well, would it make sense to join up forces with a company that can, you know, our strengths will uh, complement them and their strengths will complement ours. So we have gone through various acquisition discussions. I think the only time we started doing them seriously in 2016. And it's been a fascinating process in terms of things that we've gotten close to the finish line um, and sometimes, uh, you know, crazy acts have happened where, you know, a, hmm, I'm trying to, I guess I don't want to give away specific companies. So just a, a major person has departed or has been fired and that's changed the, the tenor of the conversation and they're the focus of the company. So that's something that doesn't really, that was completely out of our control there have been some where we've gotten close to the finish line and the acquiring company has gotten cold feet and there have been some where we've walked away as well. And I look back and there's not a single one that I, I really wish had happened because I've realized it's it's so important to me what we've built with Hitlist. I think I'm, I'm very proud it's in the world that we have you know about a quarter million people a month who are seem to be happily using the product. And um, there isn't a need to join up with a company if it's not the right fit. And a number of the acquiring companies that we've talked to have either said, well, you know, we want to hire you because you're innovators. So it's really just, it's an acquire and they wouldn't necessarily keep the hit list product going. And I do think we're unique in the market and I, I don't want to shut it down. Um, there are also other acquirers where when we've talked to other companies that have been acquired by that company, you know, oftentimes acquisitions will have an earnout or some sort of bonus, uh, according to if you you know hit these numbers, then you get this multiple or this number. Um, and we have one company in particular that I was quite inclined to to join up with, 
and talked to another company. They said, oh yeah, that deal that looks so amazing on paper, they actually made it impossible for us to hit those targets by just not allowing us to integrate our API you know, until the time elapsed had come. And then of course, you know, immediately afterwards, the APIs were available and we could integrate as the business should have been, but they just didn't want to give us that extra money. And that seems like a terrible fate to, you know, put something that you put your heart and soul into and, uh, and, and match up with a company like that. I'm not uh, trying to sound like I'm doing this completely out of emotion and I won't let my baby, you know, suffer if there is a, a good deal that is something that is good for the hit list users and investors. Uh, that is something that I would, I would do. But so far that hasn't, but all of the elements haven't matched up correctly. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like um, selling your company is a uh, a part of the startup journey that is very rarely touched upon. And um, ironically, I have a few of uh, Lounge Buddy is one of uh, my investments that you know exited, and I was shocked actually when we had some inbound acquisition interest. The we were it was all one book that was recommended for people listening. That's called the Magic Box Paradigm, and it, the fact that everyone recommended one book and one book only, while well, there's probably 25 books that get recommended about fundraising, is that most people don't even think about this stage very much. So um, I, I, uh, I I'm glad you went into that. I kind of hinted at it a little bit, uh, not so subtly. But um, uh, Kevin, any anything else you would like to discuss? No, no, I, I, I was going to get to the, you know, started in 2012 into 2013. Where would you kind of say you are with the business now that we're in 2020? But I sense that you probably, you probably just answered that. I mean, do, are you ahead or behind perhaps where you thought you would might be? I think this is the same answer to the, yeah. the fundraising question in the sense that we can't A-B test what would have happened if we'd, you know, raised venture and could we be bigger? Could we be you know, on 10 million phones instead of 1.7, could we um, be impacting the industry in different ways? Um, I think in order to remain sane, I have to simply say that I'm, I'm happy with what we've achieved so far. Uh, of course, I have dreams. I, I mean, I wish, I wish we were 100 times bigger. And I think that we still could be. Okay, you've talked you, you talk yourself into a follow-up question then. Okay. Has there been any points where you felt that you aren't sane and you've started going insane? And what might have, though, what have, might have triggered those? Oh, what a great question. Well, I mean, certainly when you talk to over 100 investors and they all say no, yeah. that makes you question your sanity. Yeah. Uh, but the kind of, you know, it wasn't to me, it wasn't delusion. It was something where I was looking at the numbers and I said, well, I think they just don't understand this industry. They don't see what I see. Um, and so that was what gave me the sort of inner fortitude to keep going that and I'm just a very stubborn person. <laughs> Good. Well, we like stubborn people, uh, especially those that have got some great stories to tell us. So uh, uh, for, from us, uh, thank you very much, Gillian, uh, for sharing uh, how you got here with us today on this episode. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. And I, I do want to say, I think I count both of you as, as formative people that I've met in the travel startup journey. I love that you're doing this podcast and thank you for having me on it. 
Okay, you're not the first person to say that, so we're, we're always very pleased and quite humbled when they do. So <laughs> that's that, that's really nice. Thank you. So uh, for the audience then, so you've been listening to another episode of How I Got Here. These are Mozio and Focuswire's weekly chats where we explore the stories behind travel and innovation in transportation. So uh, thank you very much again to Gillian. Uh, also, and finally, thank you very much from David and myself. Uh, looking forward to seeing you all on the next episode. We'll see you next time. Thanks ever so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week. Oh, 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 oh,